1 Kings chapter 11, starting from verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Father, uh, we thank you. Uh, We praise you. Uh, We are so grateful that your desire to speak to us is greater than our desire to hear. And we pray this evening uh, that in spite of the hardness of our hearts, you would pour out your spirit and give us ears to hear, eyes to see the Lord Jesus more clearly, hearts to understand and believe and act. Uh, We pray that we would hear your voice this evening and that you would not leave us as we've come here, but you would make us more like Jesus. For we ask in his name. Amen. Now, I'm aware that Sunday evenings are probably not the best time for searching questions, but I'm going to ask one anyway. Um, Your life, your life, would you consider it a success or a failure? Don't worry, I'm not looking for actual answers. I just want you to ponder the question. Would you consider your life a success or a failure? How would you decide which of those it was? How would you determine that? I think that question is provoked uh, by our, our, our reading here in 1 Kings 11 because Solomon, as I'm sure you know, by most worldly standards, was a success. 
The, the writer of Chronicles puts it like this. The Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal splendor such as no king over Israel ever had before. He famously had great wisdom. He had enormous wealth. If you read through 1 Kings, the, the money flowing into Israel was extraordinary. He had great power. He's what uh, you'd call today an influencer. People wanted to come and know what he thought about stuff, and they'd come and see him. But in the verses that, that we've just had read, we read that the Lord became angry with Solomon. That, that judgment was going to fall on him, or at least on his descendants, that was going to negatively impact the, the, the whole nation. In the end, Solomon failed as, as God's king. And the way that he failed, um, I think, helps us evaluate our own success and failure. Uh, and the root of it all, and oh, oh yeah, there is a zapper. This is the magic moment where we see the zapper works. The root of it all is this. Nope, I'm going the wrong way. That's not the root of it all, that's the missing song. Do I go the other way? Is it, do I go left to go forwards? Is that? Hang on, it's, oh, it's right now. There we go. Perfect. The danger of an unfair. I'm so pleased, by the way, that ours isn't the only church where sometimes slides don't work and stuff. You know, that's okay, isn't it? It's all right. We know, don't we, um, that we live in a broken world. It's okay. The danger of an unfaithful heart. This is the root of it all. The risk when you look at Solomon or yourself or anyone else, indeed, is that we focus on the externals. And Solomon's externals were pretty impressive. As I've said before, he was hugely wealthy. He lived in a spectacular palace complex. He, he was responsible for building an astonishing temple for the Lord, the like of which has never been seen. He was so popular. He was so wise. All the outside bits looked great. But the problem lay not on the outside, but on the inside. We saw that in those first few verses. If you've got your Bibles, do keep them open in 1 Kings 11. Let me read uh, verse 1 again. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. I don't know about you when you read that. The first thing I say is, 700 wives? <laughs> That's the thing that jumps out at you, isn't it? <laughs> it seems extraordinary. In fact, it reminds me of a story I, I heard the other day about two little boys at a wedding. And one whispers to the other one, how many wives are you allowed to have? And the other one says, 16, four better, four worse, four rich and four poorer. <laughs> um, and, but Solomon had a lot of wives anyway, didn't he? He had a lot of wives. And in, in his context, that doesn't necessarily mean he had a huge sexual appetite, which I think was what I assumed when I first read it. I think it probably means a, a lot of these weddings would have been to sort of secure political alliances with other nations and other groups of people. Um, the, the narrator makes no explicit comment on the number Although it was large. Uh, it doesn't even make any comments on the, the foolishness of relying on these kinds of uh, arrangements, these kinds of alliances for peace and security. No, the thing that the narrator highlights is that the Lord had forbidden 
this kind of intermarriage with, with other nations. Now again, in our culture, that can make us feel a little bit twitchy, can't it? It sounds a little bit racist at first, doesn't it? But not if you read it carefully. The issue, the problem is not that they're foreign. Uh, the problem is, and it's there in, in verse uh, 2, that they will turn your hearts after their gods, after other gods. Solomon's um, kind of uh, administration, if you want a better word, as a whole, had a very positive attitude to other nations. Other nations were involved in the building of the temple. When the temple was dedicated, Solomon prayed, and he, he prayed about other nations praying to the temple and coming to God in that way. It wasn't that, that they were anti-other nations. The problem isn't race or nationality. The problem is worship. And specifically, the issue is Solomon's heart. That the warnings that were given back in Exodus and in Deuteronomy were all about the risk of, of marrying these foreign, uh, so, foreign women uh, and, and their hearts being turned to these so-called gods and all the consequences that would follow. And that's exactly what we see here in verse 4. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David, his father, had been. That same heart in which the Lord had placed wisdom, that same heart that the Lord had made wise and discerning, now turns away from the Lord towards other gods. This is devastating on on so many different levels. Firstly, and above all else, it's devastating because it represents unfaithfulness towards the true and the living God. As Dale Ralph Davis says, this is first commandment stuff here. It's at the heart of biblical faith is to have God first in your heart. It's to have at the heart of your loyalty the God who first loved you. That, that's, that's the center of biblical faith, isn't it? And it's central to biblical faith, not because God is some kind of um, egomaniac who arbitrarily determines that everyone ought to uh, give him glory. No, it's because he is the source of everything good and true. It's good for us to be in relationship with him. It's good for us to live under his rule. To turn your heart from him is to turn from all that is good and life-giving and true. Yes. To turn from what is good and true. That there's nothing and no one more worthy of our worship and our love and our praise than he. And and we're settling for second best when we we chase after anything else or anyone else other than him. And the narrator double underlines this point in the way he describes these so-called deities whose Solomon heart chases after. He starts in verse 5 with Ashtoreth. Uh, the goddess of the Sidonians. Now, apparently, outside of the Bible, Ashtoreth is known as Astarte. And in the Bible, the Bible writers, what they do, this is a bit technical, but I think it's, it's intriguing. It, the, the, the Bible writers take the, he, the vowels of the Hebrew word for shame, which is bosheth, they take the, the vowels for shame or shameful, and they add it onto her consonants. So instead of Astarte, you get Ashtoreth which even in the way you say the name underlines it's shameful, shameful to turn to this so-called God. This is not a good swap. You're turning from what is true and good and wonderful to something that is shameful. 
And the writer can't even bring himself to use the word God of Molech. Um, if you've got NIV like me, uh, the NIV translators have inserted the word God there. But it doesn't say that in the original. It just says, um, Solomon followed after Molech or Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. It doesn't even call him a God. It's just an abomination. If you know anything about uh, Molech worship, you know that it involved the sacrifice of children to Molech. The, the writer can't even hide his disgust here. Turning from all that is good and true to this abomination. Verse 6 summarizes, So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. And where your heart goes, so your hands go, so your resources go. And, and this Solomon who was responsible for building the most wonderful temple to the Lord now starts um, popping up worship centers for, for Chemosh or Chemosh, the, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable, the ab, 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 abomination, can't say the word, of the Ammonites. And he does it just on the hill across from the temple of the true God, almost kind of rubbing, rubbing salt in the wound. And verse 9 tells us the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. And we shouldn't be surprised by the Lord's anger. He's simply acting in line with his character. He's simply acting in line with the, 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 the promises, the covenant, the agreement he'd made with his people earlier that actually if they were to turn from him so he would judge them, he would punish them. There, there will be consequences when you turn from this God if he is, if he is to be true to his words. The culture we live in would much prefer it here, wouldn't it? If God said, oh, it's all right, Solomon. You, you know, you're doing your best and, uh, you, you know, you, you, you're, you're sort of welcoming these other gods and goddesses as well. That's okay. But, but, but for God to say that, for, for the true God to say that would be for the true God not to love us. Because he knows that these false gods are not good for us. He knows that they're, they're wicked and damaging and, 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 and life-taking rather than life-giving. So if God said it was just, oh, it's okay, it doesn't matter, it would say he didn't love us. He doesn't care for us. And I find it sobering that Solomon to whom it says here, the Lord God had appeared twice, could turn away from God. God had appeared to him, spoken to him, and yet his heart turns away from him. It tells me that, that past experience of God is no guarantee. Is that going to do its business? Can you give me one more, please, gents? Thank you. Oops, got two more there. Oh, well, doesn't matter. We'll have them together. Despite our past experience of the, the, of, of the Lord's goodness, that that's no guarantee of our present faithfulness, is it? And that's why I want to say that, brothers and sisters, guard your hearts. Guard your hearts. I, I don't know you guys at all, really. I know one or two of you, but I don't know most of you very well. There may be some sitting here who once loved the Lord with all their hearts, who knew something of his goodness to them in their lives, who rejoiced in the gospel, and yet years have passed, and slowly your hearts have slipped away from where they once were. And, and by the way, I don't think this was a sudden failure on Solomon's part. 
as one writer puts it, rather this is the result of the creeping pace of accumulated compromises, the fruit of a conscience desensitized by repeated permissiveness. We're not in the same position as Solomon in salvation history, but the human heart hasn't changed. Beware the creeping danger of an unfaithful heart. Maybe there's something in your hearts now that you are aware of that is just tempting you, that is, that is trying to draw your hearts away from the Lord. And if that's so, don't let it stay there. Don't let it take root. Confess that to the Lord. Bring it before him in prayer. Ask for his Spirit's help to renew your desires and your affections for him. I know that my heart has much in common with Solomon's, which is why one of the prayers that I often pray is, is that prayer found in Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I pray that prayer several times a week because I need to, because our hearts are treacherous and so easily swayed. Well, the consequences for Solomon would be significant. His kingdom was going to be split, though not in his lifetime, which reminds us our actions have consequences. So, so I say again, brothers and sisters, we must guard our hearts. Well, the rest of the chapter unpacks the way in which the Lord would bring about this judgment. Uh, we're not going to read it all, but Sam is going to read a little bit more for us now. Uh, give us the second half of our reading. Thank you, Sam. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 26. Also, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zerudda, <clears throat> and his mother was a widow named Serua. Here is the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the terraces and had filled in the gap in the wall of the city of David, his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Moloch, the God of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose and who obeyed my commands and decrees. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you ten tribes, I will give one tribe to his son, so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. 
the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David, my servant, did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt, to Shishak, the king, and stayed there until Solomon's death. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book of the annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel for 40 years. Then he rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Well, our first point was, was focused on a human being, Solomon, and the very real danger of an unfaithful heart. And I hope it troubled you. Because measured by this standard of a faithful heart, well, we're all in trouble, aren't we? None of us have hearts that consistently put the Lord first. The outworking of that will look different for all of us, but none of us have a truly faithful heart as far as the Lord is concerned. So in this second half, I want to encourage you to turn your eyes away from yourself uh, to the source of our hope. And our hope is in a sovereign God back again. Brilliant. Hope in a sovereign God. So in this second part of the chapter, we see the outworking of God's judgment on Solomon. And in particular, um, that is focused on three individuals. We, we didn't read the sort of the middle bit. Um, I don't know why, because I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about it. It was my, sorry, that's my fault, not yours. I, that's what I said to have read, so I'm not blaming anyone. But I just wanted to mention uh, the first two characters who, and, and particularly the way they're introduced. So have a look with me at verse 14. It says, Then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomites, from the royal line of Edom. Uh, and then again, you see the same phrase in verse 23. God raised up against Solomon another adversary, Rezan, son of Eliada, who'd fled from his master, and so on and so forth. And if, you, if you've got good memories, in Bible terms, the last time we came across this phrase, the Lord raised up. Well, it's in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, if you know, there's, there's this repeated cycle of God's people going astray uh, and uh, being swamped by enemies, and then they cry out to the Lord, and in his grace, the Lord raises up a judge, a deliverer, someone to rescue his people. And that's a really positive thing. But now, same phrase, God is raising up these adversaries. The, 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 the Hebrew word is Satan, these Satans, to... Uh, not to bless, not to rescue his people, but to cause God's people trouble. Uh, and that's a sobering reminder, isn't it? That the, the doctrine of God's sovereignty kind of cuts both ways. It means that everything comes under his authority. Not just the things that we like and the things that seem obviously good and blessings to us, but even the things we find hard and distasteful. They come from the sovereign hand of God. But what we see here is, is that this sovereignty is a faithful sovereignty. Go on, your turn. You can do it. And you're going to do it? There we go. Faithful sovereignty. 
What I mean by that is that God faithfully works in history according to the things that he's already revealed, according to the principles and promises that he's already laid down. So the covenant that he made with his people all those years beforehand in the time of Moses said exactly what he would do if his people were to turn away from him. And now he's acting just as he said he would act. And I say that if his people turned away, did you notice that's exactly what happened? It wasn't just Solomon turning away, but his people too. Did you spot that in verse 33? Uh, when when uh, Ahijah is, is saying what the Lord's going to do, he says, I will do this because they, plural, have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth and the God and so on and so on and so forth. In Bible terms, we often see that, don't we? As the king goes, so the people go. It's a reminder that those of us that have positions of leadership in church bear a greater responsibility as, as we go astray, so others go astray. But before we can really feel the balm of God's faithfulness, we need to feel its bite. Uh, and as ever, there Ralph Davis, if you ever hear any sermons on kind of Kings, Samuel, all those kind of narrative books, every preacher will steal from Dale Ralph Davis. So just, that's just one of those rules, okay? He's, he's head and shoulders above um, almost all the other commentators on this stuff. But he puts it so well. He says, God is faithful in his judgment, faithful in chastisement, faithful in wrath, in jealousy, in severity. And yet, is he not deserving of praise for all this? That is, for being, whatever men prefer, a true God. The answer is yes and yes. It's wonderful that God is faithful in these ways, that he does what he says he will do. But something else really struck me about God's sovereignty in judgment in this chapter we tend to read this chapter in sort of cause and effect kind of way. And that's the right way to read it. Um, it says very clearly that because Solomon's heart turned aside, so God raises up these, um, these Satans, these adversaries. There is a causality here. But in terms of timing, something much more mysterious is going on. So consider Hadad, that first adversary there. Well, well Hadad's beef, his, his opposition with Solomon... Uh, goes all the way back to the time when David was king. Then David was, was wiping out the rest of his family and, and Hadad um, hot-tails it off to Egypt for safety. And it's only years later that he comes back to, to cause trouble for the people of God. In other words, God started to raise up this adversary many years before Solomon was even king. Never mind his heart had turned away from the Lord. That's a mystery, isn't it, of God's sovereignty. Somehow he, he could see what was going to happen with, I say somehow, he's God, of course he could see, but he could see what was going to happen with Solomon's heart. And even then he was preparing how he was going to respond to it. His plans are laid well in advance. Nothing takes him by surprise. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus today, that should be a great comfort to you. I think that's on there as well. Is that on there? Look, great comfort, there it is. It means that even in the worst of times, when you're sitting there and you're asking yourself, where is God in all this? Why is he allowing this to happen? What are you doing to your people? Even in those moments, we can rest, as one of the reformers put it, on the comfortable pillow 
of God's faithful sovereignty. He's not surprised. It's his plan working out. But there's something even better than that. He's not only faithful in his sovereignty, he's also exercising a gracious sovereignty. Come on, I'm just going to leave it all to you now. A gracious sovereignty. And we see that in the outworking of the judgment on Solomon. So just uh, cast your eyes back, if you would, to um, verse 11, where the, the Lord is speaking to Solomon. The Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. You see what God's saying? He's saying, because you've done this, I will tear the kingdom away. That tear word, by the way, becomes a very significant word in the chapter. Jeroboam is, is going to um, experience some tearing um, from, from, the, from the prophet. Um, and and that, that word, I'm going to tear it away out of, out of your hand, the hand of your son, it's, it's very similar language to the language that the prophet used to Saul all those years before when he failed God and the kingdom was taken from him. But it's different in an important way. Did you notice the difference? First of all, it won't happen now in your lifetime. It's going to happen to your son, says the Lord. And, and secondly, it won't be complete. I will leave you a tribe or two, and we can talk about the numbers later if you want to, because the numbers in this chapter are a little bit confusing. That's not for now, but if you want to talk about that later, I'll gladly do so. Well, we get a second chance just to reflect on this gracious sovereignty when, when Jeroboam, the, the notorious son of Nebat, um, he, he's promoted by Solomon, we, we read, didn't we? Because Solomon saw that he was a great worker and promotes him. But then uh, this, this, this Jeroboam has an encounter with God's word through the prophet Ahijah. And uh, he gets a somewhat unexpected message. Ahijah tears up this brand new uh, cloak and then he explains what this is all about. Uh, Verse 31. Then he said to Jeroboam, take ten pieces for yourself. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. He says why he's doing this, and then verse 34, But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, and who obeyed my commands and decrees. I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son, so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. What you see going on here is, is a sort of a clash of two principles. On the one hand, God must act in judgment on his people and on his, his king whose heart has turned away. That's what he said he will do. He must do that. He can't, um, he can't stop that. He can't ignore that. But on the other hand, he's made binding promises to David that David would always have a king on the throne. And, and God can't break that promise either. He's got to be faithful to his promise there too, however unfaithful his people might be. So we see here that whilst Solomon's unfaithfulness does have consequences, God's judgment doesn't have the last word. 
And there's just a little word in verse 39, which must have brought no end of hope to Israelite ears in those days. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. But not forever. There will be an end to this punishment. God's promises haven't failed. God's grace always wins out. So this, this is a word from the Lord, a word from Yahweh, which is a word of judgment, yes, but it's tempered with grace. And the grace only flows because of his faithfulness to that prior promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Do you remember that promise? You know, I, I will judge your son with the, the rod of man, I think it says, but, but I will not remove my love from your house. You'll always uh, I'll establish your throne forever. It says something like that, doesn't it, in 2, 2 Samuel 7. And so that reminds us, and this is just another bit of point of application, but we really can take God at his word. We really can take God at his word. That's, I think, another encouragement of this otherwise rather sad little episode. If we were to carry on reading through the book of Kings, we'd see that God's word causes nations to rise and fall. That God's word brings uh, fruit to barren widows. It brings stores of food to those who are destitute. God's word even causes grain prices to tumble. <laughs> Uh, causes Jerusalem and the temple to be destroyed. Uh, that same word that can do all of that will also preserve David's line forever. Not even death can get in the way. As another pastor put it, though Solomon turns from Yahweh and departs from him, though Solomon and his kingdom are torn in two by his double loyalties, yet Yahweh the Lord promises to restore David's house. Ultimately, through another son of David, torn in two in his sacrifice on the cross. Because this is where this is all heading, of course. This is where it's all heading. God's faithfulness means God must punish his people for their disobedience. We'll see that the nation will be split in two. Ultimately, both parts of the nation will be sent into exile. But God's faithfulness means that won't be the final word. His promises will endure. The people will return to the land. And many generations later, one greater than Solomon will arrive. David's great, great, ever so many greats, grandson, the Lord Jesus, who, who finally brings, out, brings about the rescue to, to be all rescues. A, a rescue that can finally deal with the problem of the human heart. Because unlike Solomon, King Jesus is and was a king whose heart never failed. Uh, he was unwavering in his love for his heavenly father, in his faithfulness to God. He redefined greatness in terms of humble service and, and much more importantly, through his death, he won forgiveness. For all who would put their trust in him. He won forgiveness for you and for me. For every time our hearts wander from the Lord. We started by thinking about uh, success and failure. Well, in the Bible's eyes, in God's eyes, the only success that matters is trusting the Lord with all your heart. Everything else is so much frippery. The only thing that matters is trusting the Lord with all your heart. And by that reckoning, we are all naturally failures. 
But brothers and sisters, if you are troubled by that, if you're troubled by your wandering hearts, know this, that look to our faithful King Jesus. To our faithful King Jesus. Turn to him in repentance and faith. Turn to him and he will give you a new heart. He offers forgiveness for every time your heart wavers, as it will continue this side of the new creations. Take God at his word. Find comfort in his sovereign control over every detail of your life. And learn to find true success in a life of serving others and putting God first in your heart. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom and the truth we find in your word. We confess the way that it challenges our hearts as our own wavering hearts are exposed. And yet we thank you for the hope that we find in our faithful King Jesus, who stood in our place, who died for our sins, who took the punishment that we deserve so that we could be forgiven better so that we could be adopted into your family, better so we could be given new hearts and a hope and a future that can never be taken away. Oh, Father, if there are things in our hearts that even now are threatening to dislodge you from your royal throne at the center, please help us to see them. Please help us to confess them. Please, by your spirit, drive them out. Give us renewed love and zeal for you. Would you be first in our affections? Not just tonight as we gather with your people, but, but every day, at every moment of every day. Would you help us to lean on your faithfulness, lean on your promises in your word, to delight in your sovereignty, and above all, to love the Lord Jesus with all of our hearts. For we ask in his precious name and for your glory. Amen.